Welcome to the Restore Body Balance podcast, where we take an integrative approach combining psychology, biology, and neurology to enact life changes that stick. I'm Colleen Burns, licensed psychotherapist and founder of Restore Body Balance. And I'm Nico Yatanis, co-producer of this podcast. In today's episode, we will discuss the habits of stress-resilient people. As we've discussed building resilience over the past few episodes, let's transition now to the habits of those stress-resilient people. Right, Nico. So let's face it. Right now, nothing feels familiar. Although I guess we could say the new norm is familiar, although that keeps changing as well. Old rules don't apply, and what worked well before no longer does, and we are most likely feeling anxious. As a result of this new norm, we need to look at making room for accepting new feelings and how we've basically arrived here is very important. Really just looking back a little bit in our history to see not only what has worked, but what has not worked. Because endings are a necessary um, point for actual new beginnings. We are also desiring new answers in this rush to regain life as we once knew it. Therefore, we tend to cling to the familiar for control and safety. We need to be students in life right now, not victims. And that is what will move us through things when things don't go our way. Yes, definitely. And expanding on your students in life analogy, we have to be open to learning or new experiences. That way, if something unfamiliar happens, we are equipped with how to deal with it. That's right, Nico. We need to be active participants in life. Remember, we cannot always control what happens in our lives, but we can control, by and large, how we respond to it. You know, this is something we often mention in our podcasts. Really, it's it, it bears repeating. So we might not be able to control what happens to us, but we can control how we react to it or respond to it. So let's look at that for a moment. Thought patterns become emotional patterns, which become behavioral patterns. And we can use techniques to better cope with our current climate of the unknown. So I'll introduce our listeners to a term. It's called emotional granularity, which basically means constructing an instance of emotion that is tailored to the situation. Emotional granularity? That sounds interesting. Can you say more? Sure. So emotional granularity is a way of, let's say, drilling down to the root cause and feelings of what is really going on in our minds. Sometimes it even means going deep down into our aches and pains. At the Benson Henry Institute at Mass General Hospital here in Boston, where I had my training for SMART, stress management resiliency training, they called it the root fear. Really, it's the essence that you need to broaden your vocabulary with specific words. So, for example, instead of saying, I feel bad, you might actually say, I feel spiteful. So we can act and feel differently. Let's even look at envy versus anger. 
So, for example, when I had my boot on and drove every day along the Charles River here in Boston to drop my son off to swim, I quite frankly felt sad and sometimes mad looking at people running happily on the river, enjoying the outside that I used to do every day. Really, it was jealousy of all the people that were running um, and enjoying and getting their stress out and doing something they love. So when I really drilled down to it, I was able to come up with, was I sad? Was I mad? Well, actually, it was a little envy and it was a little bit of jealousy. It was really important to put that new vernacular to my thoughts and feelings. So again, when we have the identity of real feelings, you can then ask yourself questions of why are you jealous, envious, and then of course, seek out alternative ways to readjust. So today, for example, I know I have my boot off now, so that is a very exciting thing. But as I'm driving my son and I have to still sit in the car because I won't be able to run for a while, I was actually able to just watch him at swim practice today. And, you know, it was really important to reappraise, as we've often said, and have positive expectations of what we will be doing soon. Specifically, when we got home, I asked him to bring my hand weights downstairs so that I could do a workout. Again, looking at that envy and looking at that jealousy, because other people got to do what they loved, I was able to relieve stress, feel strong and empowered. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I'm sure the readjustment wasn't easy. No, it really wasn't. To add to all of those days, I stayed and watched all the people walking and running around the park um, where my son trains in Somerville. I was actually, again, adopting alternative and positive perspective, just watching him train. So even though for a long time, I just felt jealous and believe it or not, there are a lot of moms and dads and caregivers that are out there that are running around the pool. Some even go so far as to open their trunk and do some sort of kettlebell kettlebell training um, or even just walking. But today it was a beautiful day and I actually out of 20 kids social distancing in this very large 50 meter Olympic size pool, I was able to actually pick out my son's stroke. He has a very unique way of doing the backstroke. It's very elegant and very graceful, almost swan-like the way he allows his wrist to fall back in the water. And I was actually just filled with so much joy And I turned again my jealousy and envy into gratitude and elation. That's a great example, Colleen. How can we broaden our emotional granularity? I know I can feel jealous, sad, angry, etc. at times. Well, okay, so this is is sort of funny for anybody that's listening or, you know, can remember this phrase. As a parent, you're taught to use the phrase to your young child when they get upset, use your words. Meaning, instead of whining and crying and having an emotional reaction, you use words to help them understand their feelings and emotions so they can communicate it to their caregiver or parent. Lisa Feldman Barrett, who we might have mentioned in a past episode, is a psychologist and neuroscientist, and she wrote the book, How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain. Here, she suggests 
reading books to broaden your vocabulary or that emotional granularity. Also, she suggests having new experiences from food to adventures. She even suggested making up words for complex feelings. I know I often talk to my patients about a Tibetan word that's called Shenpa. And my mentor, the famous Buddhist nun Pema Chodron, uses the word Shenpa. And she says, if you looked it up in a Tibetan dictionary, you would probably see the word attachment. But she said it really doesn't get to what it is. She feels it's incomplete and doesn't really touch the magnitude of what Shenpa is. And of course, not only what it is, but the effect it has on us. So she uses the word hooked. And then she says, once we get hooked, we get stuck. So if you look at Shenpa, for example, which is a real word, but you can also make up a word, You'll get to know very clearly over time, Nico, what and where you get hooked on. So again, is it the theme of jealousy? Is it the theme of anger? And that is Shempa. And it tends to sort of be the same thing over and over again. This is something I see in my practice all the time, which is why therapy is so powerful because you begin to hear yourself think and talk out loud. And so it's funny because my clients now will often say Shenpa. You will eventually get used to where the feeling and the emotions come from. That book sounds really interesting. I'll have to check it out. The having new experiences aspect seems more important now than ever. Even during quarantine, I think that could be why so many people are resorting to cooking. It adds some variety to their day-to-day lives, even when their ability for new experiences could be limited. That's right. And you know, when you look at different experiences, it will evoke different emotions, right? And that's part of what we're trying to do right now is, again, learning to antidote stress and becoming more resilient. So... Believe it or not, Nico, there was a study by psychologists Dasher Keltner and Alan Cohen of UC Berkeley, and they did a study showing over 2,000 video clips to participants, and then the participants had to rate them. And it turns out they reported 27 distinct kinds of emotions, such as admiration, amusement, anxiety, Calmness, confusion, craving, disgust, envy, excitement, fear, sadness, romance, and so on. Our listeners can go look that up if they want. And again, it's UC Berkeley, 27 Distinct Emotions. And again, once we put new emotions into things, we are expanding that emotional granularity. Believe it or not, it's been widely studied and Their conclusions help you recover from illness more quickly. It can also have you more effectively cope with negative emotions such as anxiety and depression. So by expanding your emotional vocabulary, it helps you to pinpoint not only how you feel, but it also could help you cope with the experience. That's exactly right. And again, this is where mindfulness and meditation come into the mix because this is where we're stopping and pausing and bringing our awareness into the moment. Therefore, that moment gives you a sense of what is happening in real time. 
both at the conscious and the unconscious level. So think about it. That's the reaction formation that I mentioned in my book, Prescription for Change, Using Your Lifestyles Medicine. There, I write, a reaction formation fires in a nanosecond, which is about one billionth of a second. You can't even snap your fingers in one billionth of a second. So again, when we pause with mindfulness and meditation, we feel and then we can react accordingly. So while meditating or having a mindfulness moment, something happens or something arises into our conscious awareness and we can sort of check in, so to speak. And therefore, and this is really important, we don't react, we can learn to respond. And if we practice this enough times through mindfulness and meditation, Just being aware, you can use your emotional granularity to name your feelings and then respond accordingly. It also sounds like what we often refer to as cognitive reappraisal and positive expectation. Precisely, Nico. Cognitive reappraisal and positive expectation not only is something I learned in graduate school, but is now proven scientifically at the Benson Henry Institute at Mass General Hospital. Of course, with the support of the education with Harvard Department of Psychiatry. So here, of course, we want to also add the steps of this sort of emotional granularity by expanding our knowledge of feelings And then hopefully we will have the ability to antidote the stressors. So once in our awareness, we experience it a fewer and a fewer less times. I don't know if that is something we've said often enough to our listeners because we say this every week, but it's just so important that we give rise to our automatic thoughts and feelings because we really want to look at them at a conscious level. So it's not only taking the time to logically understand the reaction formation, okay? It's also to remember my phrase, we cannot stop intrusive thoughts, but we can choose how we respond to them. And if over time, we do not see them as threats, we don't respond. So we let the thought and feeling come up. It's in our awareness. We're able to give it a reappraisal or a positive expectation. We now have the knowledge of being able to name the feeling through this emotional granularity. And then we can move on to seeking alternative ways of coping. That reminds me of what you said last week in our Big Emotions and How to Regulate Them episode that we can fix or flex negative thoughts to be more adaptive and desirable ones. Yes, and to bring our famous combination of psychology, biology, and neurology, we can use these techniques for a personal transformation. We go from fight or flight and the stress-based response of shooting off cortisol, adrenaline, and norepinephrine, to then getting oxytocin, dopamine, and serotonin flowing. Here, you also enter a deeper level of consciousness and literally retrain the brain. You observe a thought and you have the ability to make a decision. Do I retreat or move forward? Just like my one acronym in the book, 
One is to observe, N is to maybe negate the thought, and then E is to echo what you choose to do instead. It's sort of like a how-to, Nico. We need to give the brain a choice and we give it a chance. That's also in your book. So as the fear circuits go off, it starts a new neural pattern, a learned pattern based on what we think or have learned, basically what we taught the brain. Precisely, Nico. It's literally coding. Just in our day and age today where you hear people coming up with different games or algorithms, you code in at an implicit level once we are aware. And emotional granularity is the power of decision. Once you code it in at that level, you change your behavior and perception. So, for example, I could have stayed stuck in my boot, quite literally, but I chose a different response. It's like an athlete in training. Take football players or soccer players. They train for multiple scenarios, right? They train with different drills for different ways that the other team might react. So they are ready in a nanosecond, speaking of which, when that particular circumstance presents itself. And so we need to be doing some training too, cognitively priming your brain, which is why I wrote the book as a manual so that you could actually read it, feel it, and visualize it. So you go from being interested to being committed. And I'm sure that choosing that different outlook to feeling stuck in your boot was a process to change. But once you primed your brain, it made it all the more easier. Right. And the psychology behind it actually is another term, which is if you're in child ego state or adult ego state. Child ego state, you can't have the cookie before dinner, you can't have the car. And adult ego state is we're in control. We don't feel powerless and helpless over our circumstances. So as you just said, priming your brain, you prime your brain to focus on emotions, goals, and feelings that you do want. And if you do it enough times, this training of the brain will all of a sudden say, hmm, this is important. You do this a lot. You better pay attention. So we just need to point it in the direction to what we want to pay attention to. And remember, Nico, beliefs drive behavior. That's what we talked about last week. What is behind our belief system? Because what's behind our belief system is what is making us behave the way we do. We also last week talked about our own unique beliefs, like anger stems from injustice, sadness stems from loss, and something like anxiety is from a lack of control. And they're all embedded in that bottom-up network we talked about. The top-down network is where we're able to reason. The bottom-up is more automatic. Eventually, by rewiring those bottom-up networks to become less excitable, guess what? If they're not as excitable, we don't need to calm them down. And then it's all about rewiring to a new neural connectivity. Again, it's coding. We just need to be aware of what we are connecting. Is it like the term neural dissonance or cognitive dissonance? It is, Nico. That's something my patients often ask me about a cognitive dissonance. You know, with our current climate, we want freedom, but the other voice says you can't. 
that's cognitive or neural dissonance. So it's between the conscious and the unconscious. So the key here is we need to get into alignment between our new goal and the old pattern. So you need to develop a new belief. So it's almost like singing a song or hearing a song and the associations with that song. As I always try to bring in at least one pop culture reference to highlight some of the points we mentioned, the song associations point reminds me of the movie Silver Linings Playbook. In the movie, the main character had a negative association to his wedding song with his ex-wife. To the point when he heard it in public, he had a physical reaction and shut down. But then something positive happened when someone came up to him when he was reacting to the song and it made it easier for him to hear it again because someone went up and offered help. So it formed a new positive association with that song. That's a great example. And yes, you always bring it to the current climate of pop culture. Uh, so thank you for that, Nico, for our younger listeners. Um, you know, we also need to feel them, right? And recognize them and reinforce the unconscious desire to a conscious desire. So you take that new belief that is either foreign or familiar in the bad and not believed and then make it familiar. So every brain has a, let's say, error detection unit, okay? So you veered off the road or you're out of your comfort zone. And of course, the first line of defense is that self-talk that is generally negative. It wants to keep you in that same neural pattern that exists because it's familiar. So when you get your conscious goal, aligned with the unconscious pattern, all of a sudden, that alignment has a new neural coherence. It sounds like a skill, like learning to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's right. And I heard that phrase the first time by the Peloton trainer, Alex Toussaint. He often says that you got to learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And eventually, with enough training, you're able to feel more and more comfortable. Everything's hard at first, especially with physical activity and training. So we need to do the same and reframe our situation. But again, you need to be consistent each day. It takes practice for sure. And again, giving your brain a choice, we give it a chance. We need to be aware of our unconscious thoughts and feelings. And when we do, we'll have the opportunity to choose another way of adopting the positive perspective or reappraise this perspective in a way. So let's say you start day one with some meditation and mindfulness, and then you add it twice a day, and then you add it three times a day. It leaves an imprint like the coding. And I know it sounds like a bit of a ping pong match, constantly kind of battling your thoughts and feelings, but you need to interrupt the pattern, right? Otherwise, you're just jumping back on that super highway and reinforcing the old one. The hidden, habituated response will always win. So we need to create a new neural coherence in the brain. Again, getting the implicit, explicit, and of course, being consistent. Just like your movie reference where the character was able to metabolize and experience some softness and support during a very stressful moment. 
Exactly. And that's also why you have your clients write in the journal portion of your book, Prescription for Change. And one of my favorite things about the journal is that it provides you with structure. So you're not just writing on a blank page, you know what subjects to focus on each week as you build these new neural pathways. And also the mindfulness and meditation exercises help you stop and pause and become aware of these automatic thoughts and feelings. Yes, and for our listeners, don't forget, your brain will try to talk you out of it. But if you confront it gently every day and antidote the stressors with new language and opportunities, like cognitive reappraisal and positive expectation, all of a sudden you have a new lesson. And again, if we add the emotional granularity, guess what? Your brain will eventually give in and habituate that message. It's just like tying your shoes. You're not really thinking about it anymore. You're just doing it because the brain wants to free up for more important tasks. And of course, just to reiterate, your beliefs drive your behavior. Our beliefs are the lens on how we actually see the world and by which we behave. So if you want to change your beliefs, you don't focus on changing your behavior, you focus on changing your beliefs that drive your behavior. Precisely. So your brain is an organ. Just like your heart, you can speed it up or you could slow it down. You can tune in or you can tune out. It takes discipline and practice. Not to mention a willing participant, which again is why we have the journal at the back of the book that you so amazingly, beautifully created. It allows somebody to either just tick a box or write one line, and it builds on itself week after week after week so that the pass exercise becomes automatic, and then we can start learning the new task that doesn't feel so cumbersome. Exactly. It seems the brain does not like change. And as you always say, Colleen, the brain is drawn to bad news. And we are definitely experiencing both bad news and change right now with our COVID climate. Yes. And, you know, let's remember changes are inevitable. And perhaps not at this level for sure with COVID. But I learned a long time ago that changes are distinct from transitions. Transitions are shifts in our identity and belief systems. They help us assimilate to change and they don't occur automatically. They require consistent effort, hence the journal. Right, identity shifts like you mentioned in your book. That's why the book is composed of eight shifts that create the prescription for change plus the chapter on identity. That's right, Nico. So the change happens in our role, right? So it's what was our role before COVID, our way of living, our relationship. Something now is sort of like a signal going off that something is not familiar. It's also very similar to grief or an ending of a way that we used to be. Not to mention the fact that we are feeling this sense of a future being impossible. And some changes are more gradual, right? So believe me, it's you know not anything new to look at a child all of a sudden grow up in front of you. And right now with my son learning how to drive, you know it, that's a more gradual change, right? Whereas what we just experienced was a more sudden change. And we're always longing for some previous way of life. Specifically for me, 
I'd be happy to drive him around for the rest of his adult life just to keep him safe, but I know I have to let go. And with our current climate, again, that phrase, we're learning to feel comfortable being uncomfortable, especially with social distancing and wearing masks. What are some final ways our listeners can help navigate through change and transition? Well, our listeners can do a few things. Again, looking at the habits of resilient people. Not only are we looking at that, you know, positive expectation and cognitive reappraisal and emotional granularity, but we have to look at, let's say, how are they currently dealing with stress and transition? Maybe even before COVID, how did they deal with stress and transition? Are they actually making room for the change? Like you said, not only with mindfulness and meditation, but learning something new. You know, is it gardening or baking bread or trying some new food or trying on a new experience? Some people, as I've said, are learning a new language. You know, people are finding new and and improved ways. I know here on Beacon Street, they're taking parking spots and making them into little outdoor cafes and patios, which I think is brilliant. Each one having a new way of having an awning or a covering or an umbrella. You know, are you making room for change? The other thing is, I know this is going to be a big one, but coming to a level of acceptance around it. I mean, really, that's the hardest part. And and I think we don't want to accept what's going on. But If you come to some level of acceptance that this is our new norm for now, it does help us fight that resistance. Let's also look at perhaps how we're handling these thoughts and feelings that cause us discomfort. Like I said, there are things to do to antidote the stress that we mentioned before. Let's even look at if we lessen the reins of the resistance, right? I've often talked about my daughter who rides horses and she's thankfully back to the outdoor barn. You know, when you pull too hard, right? There's this idea of the horse actually starts to back up. When you're riding along, a gentle pulling back of the reins has the horse stop. But if you continue to pull, not only does it stop, but it's a sign to keep moving backwards. So how our listeners are loosening the reins of their resistance actually helps them to accept not knowing what the future brings. And finally, let's not forget to do something different. Learn a new skill, have a new experience, try to meet new people, even if it's joining a virtual book club. My undergraduate institution, Bentley University in Waltham here in Massachusetts has one. They, you know, every week put out a new book for families and for professionals and otherwise. Let's also look at what brings you support and makes you feel good. Perhaps even if you didn't do it before. Yeah, and even technology has created so many new experiences for people during these times. You can learn a new language, take a virtual visit, find a recipe. It goes on and on. That's right. And speaking of experiences, I know in our earlier podcast, I talked about magazines that are on Instagram like Travel and Leisure and Condé Nast. Oh, I can't tell you how many beautiful photos of places that I can, you know, virtually visit in my mind or online. The last hurdle, of course, is, and I know this phrase is tough, but people often use it to say, let go. I say, let it be, right? Because it's hard to let go, but let's look at what's not working because new rules apply and the feelings that go with them, like anger, resentment, or an old identity. 
Letting go of beliefs that weigh us down actually allows us to rise up. At Benton Henry Institute, we were told it's almost like being in an eddy. If anybody knows what that is, you know, on the side of a river, they're little tide pools. And they often said, you know, your mind, sometimes it's like a leaf stuck and spinning in the eddy until we kind of gently free ourselves to float down the river. When we make space for something new or challenge that belief or reappraise, we gain a broader, more positive expectation. Here, our despair can be replaced with new beginnings. And as endings, remind us that we are not in control. Again, which is why we have the ritual of writing in the journal. It really does help. And of course, the shifts you mentioned or transitions that help us get into something new and different. And if you want to learn more about the book and, and the journal, you can visit us on the web at www.restorebodybalance.com book. Thank you, Colleen. You've given us plenty of tools and resources to understand habits that create stress-resilient people. I know we all want to ultimately become stress-resilient people, but it isn't an easy process, which is why it requires a couple of shifts along the way. Thank you all for listening to this episode of the Restore Body Balance podcast. If you would like to hear more from us, you can click the subscribe button. And we also are available on YouTube. See you next week.